Hey, what's up? Matt Wyatt here. This Dog Pile podcast is brought to you by Mississippi Land Bank. Mississippi Land Bank, where they understand the lay of the land. Visit them online, mslandbank.com. Also, by Jubilations Cheesecake in West Point. Go by and visit George and Luann and the folks at Jubilations. Stop into the coffee house right on Highway 45 in West Point. You can watch cheesecakes being made. And while you're there, take some home. And a special thanks to High Point Roasters Coffee in New Albany. Dan the Coffee Man and the folks there at High Point Roasters. They keep me stocked up with coffee. You can ask my family. They hear that coffee grinder running at about 4.30 in the morning, and then I pour that first cup. It just gets things started right. Trust me on this. Get your coffee at High Point Roasters. Highpointroasters.com. What's up, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Dogpile, still going daily from the College World Series in Omaha at TD Ameritrade Park. I'm Brett Hudson. I'm actually recording this one at TD Ameritrade Park. Most of the time, I've had to go back to the rental house or, or some random location to record these things since the stadium was closing down on me, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I'm actually recording this one in TD Ameritrade since Mississippi State threw me a bone and gave me a day game today. And I actually have Matt Wyatt with me. How about that? Hello there. What up, Brett? I know. I'm, I'm used to doing these daily pods solo, but it's nice <laughs> to have you on, on on this one. And, of course, you joined this one as State has the hardest road possible to the championship yeah. series. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're coming to you after Mississippi State lost to Vanderbilt 6-3. to three. Uh, It was also going to be t- – it's also going to be tough on the team in this bracket to get to the losers for the – wow, I'm watching this. <laughs> it's almost as if I haven't slept. Uh, <laughs> As I was trying to say, it's going. it was going to be hard for the team on this side of the bracket on the loser side to get through to the championship series because they were going to have to win three games in three days, right? Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. But now it's even harder for Mississippi State because Wednesday was no longer an off day. Wednesday was a play day in which you got into the loser's bracket. Weather made it difficult in, in that regard because of – because of weather pushing a game that was supposed to be on Tuesday night to uh, to Wednesday afternoon, that was the six to three loss to Vanderbilt. Uh, there there was a lot. There's a lot to get to and and break down about this game. But I want to start by spinning this forward to that difficult road ahead. It starts seven o'clock night game against Louisville on Thursday night, which JT Gim will start. But pitching after that's going to be pretty difficult because Chris Lamona said after the game that he's not comfortable with starting Ethan Small on Friday. Yeah, what'd you think about he, that? I, I I understand it. Uh, this is a guy who's been pretty hesitant to throw guys on one fewer day of rest. I mean, he was always kind of wishy-washy and non-committal about that during the regular season, even going from a Friday, Saturday, Sunday to a Thursday, Friday, Saturday series. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of wishy-washy and non-committal about that. And then there was that Texas A&M series where he straight up did not do it until weather get, did him a solid. And and he got to throw Ethan Small uh, in game one of that series anyway. Uh, but So when you take that into consideration and add in the fact that he, Ethan Small threw 102 pitches on Sunday and this game would be on a Friday, I wasn't surprised 
buy it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend to know the the health of Ethan Small's arm and elbow to the point that I can tell you if it's the right or wrong situ- uh, decision. But I wasn't surprised by the decision. By the decision, what did you think of it? Well, you know, and and we're talking about the decision. Just go ahead and say he's not going to throw on Friday, regardless of what happens. Right? Yes, and and I just yes. I think um, I mean I understand that um, I, I understand the rationale, like you. I think that's what you said, right? Your response was, "Well, I understand it. I I do too. I understand it." And I think with potentially elimination here, um, you know, is what you're staring at. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I it's it's hard to imagine not considering that. But the thing is, I mean, the way you're looking at it is he's got to, in order for you to win a three-game series championship that starts on the 24th, <laughs> he's got to pitch for you in that. You know, if you're going to win yeah. that, and that's the goal. So I've seen a lot of reaction. I totally understand that in elimination baseball, this game is the only one that matters, period. You know, you got to win this one to play the next one. I know it. But they've said it all along. They didn't come here just to last a little while. He's trying to set himself up. He's looking, even after losing that game today, Brett, I think he's looking at it like here's a, the scenario in which we win this whole thing. Because what's the difference in winning one game or two games or even three games in the College World Series but not winning the whole thing? It's all the same. Yeah. Yep. So I'm like you. I understand it. And I think it's it adds an interesting fold to how Mississippi State treats its pitchers for however long their their run here lasts because he said all hands are on deck with that Thursday game. So you know Ethan Small's not gonna start on Friday. Therefore he didn't really commit to a Friday starter if Mississippi State's going to get there, even though they know they'll play Vandy if they get there. They can't hide behind the matchup deal. And mm-hmm. and they didn't commit to that because it's an all-hands-on-deck thing on Thursday, so you don't really want to commit to a starter for your Friday game before you know how you covered your minimum nine innings in that Thursday game to potentially get there. Now, now personally, my line of thinking of that is they would prefer to go with Brandon Smith on Friday. They had him start twice in May, once in a midweek and once in the SEC tournament to see him go through the starting pitcher routine. And he covered six and a third innings with two runs allowed, a six to one strikeout to walk ratio. That's probably the most attractive option that I can think of. But again, if you need him to cover three innings to win that Louisville game, you got to do it because if you don't, the season's over. So it's a very yeah. precarious – you're kind of walking on eggshells with this pitching situation because you know Ethan Small can't pitch on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got to cover two games, two elimination games with what you got available, and Ethan Small won't be available. Uh, yeah. So it's they're kind of walking on eggshell, uh, eggshells to get through these, in theory, uh, and they hope, is 18 innings to get to that next Ethan Small start on, on Friday. It's it's very interesting, the pitching situation they find themselves in. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And, you know, and, and look, <clears throat> teams have done it before. State can do it. They can win. I got news for you. They can win their way into that national championship series. And if you can do it, Oregon State did it last year. Oregon State did it last year. It can happen. As good as Vanderbilt is, it can happen. Baseball is that crazy, you know, because 
yeah, Vandy is now, I mean, they play today. They're going to take tomorrow off while State gets ready to play Louisville in an elimination game. And then Vandy just sits there on Friday catching the winner in a great position. And whoever it is that wins tomorrow night has got to beat Vandy twice. But you're about to be into Vandy's third and fourth and fifth guys. You know, they're, well, certainly they're third and fourth guys. You're about to be into those on the mound, and anything can happen. Um, and it's just like, look, going into today's game, Brett, if somebody had said to you before the game, hey, they're going to chase Peyton Plumley, and Keegan James is going to be on the mound for significant innings in the game, you'd have said, well, Vanderbilt's going to score 10 runs then. Yep. And they didn't. Yep, that's you know. So it's I mean, Sarantola pitched well for Pete's sake, you know, and Mm -hmm. and we hadn't seen him on the mound in forever. So I guess what nothing is him. What I'm saying is we hadn't seen him in forever, and so anything can happen once you start getting into the depth of these pitching staffs. Yeah, you you went right to the next thing in my notes on on Keegan. I think with with all of the interesting questions and decisions that are going to come if if Mississippi State especially if they extend it past that first game if they beat Louisville and they get to that Friday game against Vandy, then you got some really interesting pitching decisions to make in that Friday game when you're trying to wait yourself out for a Saturday start with with Ethan Small and and all of the things that are intriguing there. I think Keegan James has as big of an impact on Mississippi State's starting pitching or just pitching situation as anyone else. Him eating three and two-thirds inning, doing so in scoreless fashion, one hit ball, and all in 55 pitches was spectacular for him, both personally and spectacular for the team Mm -hmm. because you'll notice the team got through this without using Jared Liebelt, without using Cole Gordon, only using Colby White for five pitches, uh, Mm -hmm. night-night Colby White. Excuse me. <laughs> Only using Eric Sarantola for five pitches and did not use Jack Egan. I, I want to hear what you thought about about Keegan. But before we do, here are a couple of bits from Chris Lamonis on that performance from Keegan James. He just commanded the zone. He was just he th- like he told you he had three pitches for strikes. And um, when he does that, he's always been really good. He just lost the strikes on a little bit at times. And you know when you have a regional and super regional, you don't have midweek games in a conference tournament. So he's kind of been that guy that we've thrown in the midweeks in, uh, in terms of we threw against each other and our, he's been dominating our hitters the last two weeks in between the regional and super regional. We just we had games where we went Lee Belt, Gordon, and that was pretty much it. So he's been sitting over there. Uh, I had a good feeling he'd pitch well today. Maybe it's just being able to go out and practice and compete without the lights on and, and figure his stuff out a little bit. Uh, he's dominated our hitters for the last couple of weeks. He's been really good. What do you think he's figured out in that time? Confidence, maybe. Just, you know, knowing he's pitching good. And <clears throat> today threw three pitches for strikes all day long, so it was it was nice to see. With him not pitching, were you just kind of waiting for the right moment? Was it a matchup thing? Or well, just the last two weeks we've had to lead in all those games late. Yeah. So our starters have given us good starts, and then we went Lee Belt, Gordon like we have. So a lot of my guys had to sit on their hands for two weeks, but they're all – they've come out pretty well. Matt, what do you think of uh, – of him having kind of a resurgent performance because this this season, I think we've talked about it on, on Dogpile before, this season clearly did not go the way that Keegan planned for it to go considering he started the season as the Sunday starter and then he's been more or less absent for, for the postseason until until this moment. But he he found something, as Chris Lamonis mentioned in those, in those clips, and he played a big role in a very important game in this postseason, even though it wasn't a win. I'm sure he would rather it be a win. He still played an important role in, in Mississippi State's College World Series appearance. Yeah, he certainly did. And, you know, so he faces 14 batters. He gives up one hit. 
Strong. Know, I mean, that's really strong uh, against that Vandy lineup. 14 batters, you give up one hit. Now, he did have the two walks that he issued, but he strikes out three and uh, gets three fly ball outs, four ground ball outs, 55 pitches, he threw 33 strikes. So the, the thing is, he's he was effectively wild is what he was, right? So he had he, he goes <laughs> yeah. he goes 55 pitches. He has two of them are wild pitches and he walked two guys. And but in between there, he's got three strikeouts and only gives up one hit. So he's effectively wild. He put some guys on base, but but he was around the strike zone enough and and better than 50%, which was good enough to have a good outing and you know, we've seen all year he can throw hard and his fastball can really run um, away from a lefty. They got a bunch of lefties in that lineup. And so it was effective today. It was good to see that because you've got to have him and everybody else if you want to make it to the championship. Especially now with mm-hmm. the, the schedule and the situation being uh, what it is. And we've, we've already outlined that earlier in the episode. With, I mean, I put it this way. I find it hard to believe that if Mississippi State does – get to the national championship series that Keegan James doesn't get some critical outs in a Saturday game. Yeah, I find right. it hard to believe that that happens. Mm-hmm. I agree with while that. We're, while we're talking about pitching, we have to talk about Kumar Rocker, right? He was, Ooh. he was awesome. The slider was a serious issue. And, and this is where this is the only downfall of being at the game is that I think the best place to watch pitching is on the TV broadcast mm-hmm. and the, and the camera angle that the, the TV gets. So you, you probably saw that disgusting slider better than I saw it. What'd you think? Yeah. Um, you know, early on, like first time through the lineup, he, he didn't go to it as much. And then second time through the lineup, third time, he did go to it a lot. And, some guys did a pretty decent job at times laying off of it, but it kind of like what they say in basketball, he got his though, ultimately, yep. you know, six strikeouts in those six innings. State did have five hits, but he only gives up the one earned run. So what I thought was state's just a much better hitting baseball team than say Duke. Okay. His stuff today was really <laughs> just yeah. as good. His fastball was, Good and strong. He located it. He got some calls low and away. I tell you, and, and Skelton especially, I don't know what it was. You could see very clearly what their scout was on different hitters. Like the scouting report, the plan coming in on Tanner Allen. Uh, first team times up, they're going to bust him in, low and in with that fastball, get him to swing over the top of it. They hit him on the knee with the first one. They almost hit him a couple of other times. They're trying to go in to Tanner Allen. Well, with Dustin Skelton – it was fastball, low and away, and then breaking ball. And Skelton, he was the uh, victim of several strike calls out of the strike zone. And I think it was maybe his third at bat, Skelton kind of said to the umpire, you could read his lips, he said, that's not a strike. And it was yeah. way <laughs> off the plate. But Rocker kind of earned that call because he could hit the spot anytime he wanted to. So, you know, first time up he lives with fastball, and a few guys put the bat on the ball. So next time up top of the lineup, he goes slider, and, and, and it was really good. State's still a good lineup, and they showed that. And, boy, State made some things happen as soon as they got into the, to the bullpen. And their closer, Brown, I, Brown. I, he's really, really good, okay? Yes, and his stuff is almost identical 
two rockers in terms of fastball, velocity, arm slot, and throwing a slider with it. But And I tell you, both those guys benefited. It's not that they weren't making good pitches. They were. Plenty that they earned, but they were both the beneficiary of getting strike calls off the plate away from right-handed hitters for State. So it's we're getting super technical here. I am. But there was something about that umpire and the right-handed pitchers for Vandy where when they were off the plate on their glove side, okay, to the right arm of the umpire, right. he, he was giving them that call. I guess right-handed hitters and State just never did really adjust. They kept getting behind in counts because of it. Well, the, the point you made about him focusing on the fastball the first time through the order is an interesting one because he, he said it in his, his post-game press conference. He, uh, he correctly assumed that pretty much everyone had seen highlights of that no-hitter uh, by this point. And if you saw highlights of the no-hitter, you saw spiked curveball after spiked curveball mm-hmm. after spiked curveball and just filthy breaking stuff. So he figured they would probably be looking for that. So he wanted to show the fastball and, and establish that fastball. And he clearly wasted no time yeah. in doing that. And then he something something I'd heard about him before he started was he he tunnels the fastball and slider very, very well to the point that they they really look like the same pitch until they are way too late for a batter to truly make a make a decision. And and Coach Lamon has had a pretty similar thought on that. So I'll just throw it to what he said after after the game on what Kumar Rocker gave for Vandy on uh, on Wednesday. It's an elite pitch because um, what he does, he throws you one for a strike, and then he throws you, you know, then he throws you that one that's right on the knees and ends up being, and his slider is a little bit more down than it is side. So you're, you know, it's it's kind of going under a lot of barrels. And then when you throw 95 on top of it, it just, you know, you're having to commit to something pretty early with him, and what makes it tough. I just thought he had he just a lot of poise for a freshman. Um, really good job today. So Kumar Rocker was was just impossible. You mentioned it six innings, five hits in a walk, only one run allowed, and and State actually hit up one bullpen guy, the one in between Kumar Rocker and Tyler Brown. They hit up Patrick Raby, which is a very interesting usage for for Vandy. And I've got a, a soundbite on that to to get to later in the show, but that's that's kind of spinning it forward, and we're already in the moment of of this Wednesday afternoon game. So while we're here, I wanted to bring up defense. Uh, especially on Mississippi State side, because it, it didn't do Peyton Plumley any favors early. Uh, had that really tough ball at Westburg to start, and then that one dropped in no man's land right after that. But immediately after that, it picked up, and frankly, it kept State in the game until that fifth inning. They turned that 6-4-3 double play in the first inning. Westburg had that awesome Jeter jumping yeah, throw yeah. from the grass in the third inning, then immediately handled a routine ground ball in the next at-bat. That's not an easy task. Uh, Marshall Gilbert had that huge play in the fourth inning runners on second and third with no outs. He dives to the bag to get the lead runner out. State ultimately got out of a second and third with no outs jam. And if Gilbert doesn't make that play, that absolutely does not happen. Uh, unfortunately, the, the defense was ultimately taken out of the game in that fifth inning with the exception of that weird play where Tanner Allen went to second and Riley Self didn't cover the bag behind him. Uh, but in general, three walks and a home run, it didn't really give the defense much of a choice in, in the matter of that five-run fifth inning that ultimately was Mississippi State's undoing. But all told, I thought, I thought the Bulldogs fielded this game pretty well. Definitely did that yeah. well enough to win it, I thought. Yeah, um... You know, there was one hiccup there on the bases loaded ground ball to Tanner Allen. 
mm-hmm. where, you know, you got to come home there. He knew it. As soon as it, he did it, he knew it. You know, it was kind of a goof. You know, and, and I wonder if that's why Riley Self didn't cover the bag. He assumed that T.A. Yeah. would go home with that ball. Yeah, that's it. You know, that's what it was. He gets that ground ball. There's just an assumption that he's bringing it home. We're going to get the force there at home and then figure it out from there. Lead runner. but uh, So just a mistake. And then, you know, Tanner, um, I'm trying to think. I guess it was the seventh inning where they scored two runs because that was the inning where he had the hit, but he pulled up at second base. It was the seventh, yes. Yeah, so in the bottom of the seventh, that was a base running deal there for Tanner where he really should have been on third base with one out. Um, but but in his defense, he did glance as he's getting to the second base bag. He glanced over at Cheesebro, who held up the, the, the sign to hold up at second base, you know, so it wasn't like yeah. – um, so, and on TV, Eduardo Perez pointed that out. I found it interesting, too, that – See, I was actually listening to that live on the radio with Jim Ellis and Jay, mm-hmm. Jay Powell. And Jay Powell, you know, knows baseball. He's a coach, former major leaguer, World Series champion. First thing out of his mouth was, yeah, Tanner's got to get third base right there, you know. So he saw it immediately. Then I checked the TV. They're still talking about it. Perez going, yeah, you see the replay here. He's got to go take third. But then they showed that he glances at third base to find his coach. And Cheeseboro had his hand up, had the stop sign on, and he held up at second base. Whether or not, you know, it makes a difference. But, but sometimes pitching and pitches and things happen differently. Approach at the plate happens differently when it's a three-run game and the fourth run is over there at third base with one out. Right. You know, and so anyway, a couple of mistakes here and there. But you're right. I think overall on the fielding side of it, it's plenty good enough. I thought so. I thought so too. Uh, you mentioned the that play that Tanner Allen made, where he tried to get that that double play. I'm gonna kind of pick and choose the the good parts of what Chris Lamona said on that after the game. He said probably in hindsight you'd rather him go home, but in that moment Tanner Allen thought he had the double play. Yeah. And in fairness, if if Riley and he were on the same page and Riley did go cover first base, I think it would have been a, a double play. Uh, Chris Limonis also said that Tanner's played a good first base for State all year. And, and here's the quote. We always say that ball can take you either, either way. I just think it was kind of a squib. So I think that's the piece that got him a little bit. And maybe yeah. and maybe that ball did kind of take a, a strange bounce that forced his footwork to do something differently and, and kind of took him in the direction of second base. So he he went with it. I'd have to go back and, and watch the play again to, to know for sure. But but that's what Coach Limonis said on that uh on that subject, and and we, it seems sounds like we agree. In general, the defense was was good enough to yeah, win yeah. this game for the most part. I, I think it's about time. I think it's about time we empty my notebook here. Let's um, do it. After the game, I went to the locker room and talked with JT Ginn for a minute. He's going to start the Thursday night game against Louisville. Here's that conversation. So how have you kind of managed your your arm care schedule over the last few weeks with all of the uncertainty that wasn't there in the regular season? Uh, I mean, we, we just kind of been taking it day by day and uh, whatever. <coughs> Coach Fox talk about it every day, what I should do every day. So it's kind of just been a day-by-day thing, not really a planned-out schedule. So. so when was your last bullpen? Uh Think three days ago. Is that is that about your norm yeah, for yeah. for a regular pretty, pretty season normal, start? Pretty normal stuff. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> how have you felt the last probably week or so? Yeah, I feel good. We're good. And, and when you're when you're going through sort of the the ups and downs that, that you went through, I mean, how do you kind of go out of your way to to take care of your arm in, in those times? I mean, did you change up your arm care routine at all? No, nah, I mean I pretty much stick with the same stuff I've been doing all year. I mean, you can't really 
no. I mean, stuff like that's gonna happen. It's, it's a long year, so it's just a bump in the road. But you know, it's just trust trust the trainers and uh, the staff around me and uh, Coach Fox, and uh, we just trust them. Whatever they gotta say, and uh, I mean, it's working. It's been working out, so I feel good. These, these starting pitchers seem to have really relished the big moment when when they've been presented them this year. You've had fun with with the strikeout struts and, and all that. Do do you anticipate having a, a unique energy level for that start against Louisville? Uh, I mean, just go out there and uh, do what I do, and just try to go out there and compete like I always do, and uh, pitch. A good game and hopefully, uh, we'll play a good game of baseball and uh, keep it going. Did you allow yourself to look at either <clears throat> Louisville or, or other teams since after you knew that Peyton was going to start this game? No, not really. I haven't really looked at them. I mean, we'll go over the scout report like always, but I really haven't done anything out of the ordinary. So I mentioned earlier in the show, there is one more bit of sound I want to get to, and it's this bit from Vanderbilt coach Tim Corbin. He did something really interesting in this game, which was go to his number four starter in relief. It was Patrick Raby. And, and Raby, who is, by the way, Vandy's all-time leader in wins, he got absolutely shelled. He gave up three hits and two runs in two-thirds of an innings, 24 pitches. And it cast his availability for a potential Saturday game into doubt, or at least the length of his availability into doubt. The, the Commodores are lucky in that they can turn over their usual starting rotation for the championship series if they need. But Raby going here puts Vandy in an interesting spot for a Saturday game if they have to play it. So that's something to keep in mind if State just so happens to, to force a Saturday game or if Louisville does it really either way. It's interesting for, for Vandy. Here's Tim Corbin explaining that decision. Well, it was all about winning today. I mean, this is such a crucial game for so many different reasons. And we, we've just, we're going to utilize whoever we needed today in order to win that game, whether it was Raby or whether it was Hickman. We just wanted to piece that together. But as we got deeper into that ball game, we, we knew we were going to hand the ball to Patrick and at some point get Tyler in the game. And if need be, um, you know, potentially throw Hickman or one of the lefties. But it, it, there, there was no long-term plan. You got to be very short-term in, in this particular situation because it's all about today. So, was, was any part of you shocked when yeah. when Patrick Raby took the mound? Yeah, because I, I saw it was Raby, and I immediately walked over to the group of Vandy beat writers over to my left in the box. I was like, guys, what what's going on here? What is he doing? Yeah, I, it doesn't make any sense. And and I'll you know full disclosure here, Brett, uh, as we record this podcast i haven't heard yet what uh, corbin said about it or what his reasoning was it, it was all he was all in on winning that game basically yeah. he was going to do yeah. anything to win that game because he he realized as we said earlier he realizes that the thursday day off in this in this exact situation with the weather in the bracket schedule being what it is that thursday day off is as crucial as anything else yeah. Uh, so he figured he would do everything he possibly could, and that included throwing Raby out of well, the bullpen. It, and frankly, I think Corbin's kind of lucky that Raby got shelled and they had to take him out of the uh, game at yeah. just 24 pitches because it makes you wonder if he can give you like a 40-pitch start, 50-pitch start on, on Saturday. But still, I thought the decision was was fascinating, and it's something for the more optimistic portions of the fan base out there to keep in the back of their head for a potential Saturday game between Vandy and Mississippi State because the guy that they would normally go to for the traditional start, Patrick Raby, did just throw 24 pitches on Wednesday and they did not go well. It just makes no, you know, I don't care what the rationale is. Um, you, you saw there today why starters with starter mentalities who are on starter schedules 
who've been trained as a starter, who woke up thinking like a starter, why you don't run them out of the bullpen. You saw it. It's because that's not what they do, and they're not ready for it. I don't care. You, you know, as a coach, it is weak-minded to think that your guy can flip a switch and all of a sudden be Superman out of a bullpen, okay? Because he went into the game and completely opened the door for State to get back in it. And it was just, that's a bad, bad move. You, you know, you do not. And guess what? State's one and one in this World Series, Brett, but both teams they've played have done it. Yep. And both teams that both teams State have uh, played who've done it, brought a starter out of the pen late in the game. Both teams saw their starter get hit hard. And it, it's just, it is a bad decision. And it is what it is, is coaches um, often, it, it's just a mistake. Coaches lose um, a connection with the mindset of the player. They're, they start to be a little too technical, a little too X's and O's, and start looking at everything in black and white, going, well, this guy's really good, so naturally he can go in there and get us these outs because we have to have it because it's the World Series. We wouldn't do this in the regular season, but because the World Series, we've got to have him. So this is who he is, so he's going to go do this. It doesn't work that way. You, you forget and lose sight as a coach of the mindset of, no, these are not backup quarterbacks who are ready yeah. to go in and run four plays for you and take you down. And that's what they train to do all year is to come and do it. These are not uh, – these are, these are starting pitchers who that's their mindset all year long. It's the way they think every seven days or whatever the – you know, the, the, how the schedule works out. And you run him down there, get him loose, and bring him out in the sixth inning, and look what happens. It's just a bad decision, and it's why you don't do it. Well, I think what coaches – get lost in is any coach worth his weight and worth his spot in, in the clubhouse is going to ask the pitcher, right? Like, Hey, are, are you cool if we bring you in relief? And of course, any pitcher Absolutely. who is again, worth his spot in the clubhouse is going to say, yo, we're in Omaha. Put me on the mound yeah. every second of every day. I'm ready to roll. So of course that, that conversation is going to happen if, if both parties involved are worth literally anything. And in the clubhouse. So that can't, but from the coach's perspective, that can't be all that's where your, that's where your intuition, that's where a coach's genuine deep knowledge of a player has to come in and say, man, I've, I've seen this guy work through his routine before his starts. And I, I just know that he really has a slow build up to being ready for, for a start. And I don't know how that's going to transition to being a, a bullpen guy. There there are guys who can do it, Madison Bumgarner being the, the best example, and Chris Sale mm-hmm. as well. So you got to have a case-by-case basis with that. That's one of those where you got to know your guy and, and know your pitcher and not just trust their word because, of course, they're going to tell you to put them on the mound in every situation they can be put on the mound. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, you know, so, look, on my radio show last week and, and leading up to the College World Series, uh, Brett, I made a comment at one point that Vanderbilt was the most talented team there. They are. And that State, you know, sure, State's in the in the conversation for being up there with them, but I, don't, I didn't doubt that Vandy was the most talented team. And I had uh, either a text or two or maybe somebody called as well, and 
said, yeah, well, Kyle Peterson, who's the baseball guy for ESPN, yeah. said that State is the most talented, or he thinks that they are. And, you know, it's just agreed. I, it, State is in the conversation as one of the top two, three teams. And, I, heck, today it's a 6-3 ball game against Vandy in a really a crucial spot. You could easily make the case that the two best teams in the College World Series played each other today. Okay, I, I agree with that completely. But Vanderbilt is on a different level in terms of that roster loaded with big-time players. They're on a little bit of a different level. Um, now, we'll see what you get out of their pitching staff, but when you look at that lineup, Austin Martin, Blade, you know, all the way down to Clark and DeMarco and those guys, and Fonte, as hot as he's been, he's batting in the nine-hole for them. It's just um, – they are absolutely loaded. They should be, and much is being made about the scholarship situation and the needs. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad you're getting into this. The the needs based scholarships. Um, this is another fact. No team in Omaha has more players on more scholarship dollars than Vanderbilt. Okay, that is what it is. But if I'm a player on any of these other teams, I don't care. I still want to go beat them. I still believe I can yep. go beat them. Just because they've got 20 guys on full scholarship and we don't, we're still the same age. Okay? We're still yep. the same age. And if you put it over the plate, I'm going to hit it. And if I've got my stuff working, I'm striking you out. You know, that's the way the players should and do look at it. But Vanderbilt's a little bit of a different animal. They should be the best team there, and they are. I think you're you're making complete sense here, and I think there's there, this this does get a little exaggerated. Let's, there, there there's kind of a, a, a for lack of a better phrase, a fan narrative that Vanderbilt has like 27 guys on full scholarship. That's not true. <laughs> no, that's not true. They do have more to work with than many others, especially a Mississippi state that does not live in a lottery state and therefore can't kind of cheat the 11.7 with in-state prospects that way. They, they do have more at their disposal in terms of scholarship uh, compensation for their baseball players than most other SEC schools. All of that is true. I can, I've been in there every single day. I can tell you for a fact that the guys in the locker room are not pay, playing the woe is me song because Vandy has more scholarships than Mississippi <laughs> no. State does. They don't care. No. They don't care. The only thing they care about is beating Louisville on Thursday night so they can get their next shot at Vandy and continue this run to what they hope is a national championship. Once you get here, all of the circumstantials melt away. Michigan has the inside track to the mm -hmm. national championship series right now. That is that is all the proof you need right. that once you get to TD Ameritrade Park, everything, all the atmospheric circumstances around your program, they melt away. You're one of the final eight. You're good enough to be here, right. and you're trying to be good enough to win the whole thing. Everything else, it, it might make the task harder on paper, but it doesn't matter to, to the ones that are actually trying to complete the task. Right. I, that's it. It's not an excuse. And – and it's not always an advantage. You know, people bring up Vandy's had four out of the last five number one recruiting classes. Well, I got news for you. Number one recruiting classes don't always win everything. Um, in we fact, just need to watch the most recent college football national championship to learn that. Sometimes the number exactly. one recruiting class can get absolutely smoked. You know what? Um, leading up to the year that 
Clemson beat Alabama when they had Deshaun Watson as their quarterback. Yeah. Um, Clemson, um, there there was an ACC team that had had four straight uh, the, uh, of years of the best recruiting classes in the ACC. And it, it was, was Florida State, wasn't yeah, it? It was Florida State. It wasn't Clemson. Do it. So, Sub Jimbo. And here's another thing, too, that I would throw. I'm not. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It does matter, the scholarship advantages that Vandy has. Look at their program, where it is. Mm-hmm. Without that, they're not where they are. But last year they had more scholarship players than State also, and State won a Super Regional in that's, Nashville and went to the Omaha. That's a great point. You know, so I just, I just think at this point it doesn't matter. The fact is State is good enough to beat Vanderbilt if they play well. Uh, or play and better. Now they just have to do it twice if and they beat Louisville. That's it. And they did it last year in Nashville. You know, yep. so Tanner Allen, Jake Mangum, you're exactly right. I got news for you. It hurts to lose, but because they have Louisville tomorrow, those guys are going to sleep really well tonight. They are. They're not losing any mm-hmm. sleep over losing this game to Vandy. They're going to be ready to play against Louisville. That's the way they are. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I think um, – I think it, it's really interesting. I, I had – I don't know if you saw it, Brett. I had John Cohen on my radio show today. Yeah. And um, he had some really good quotes at the end of that interview. About the 11.7. Yeah, and it, it, I think we were getting into – I think what led to it was I opened up a question about just the popularity of college baseball, but especially in the SEC. And I had always assumed that the SEC network would really help baseball incrementally – in terms of popularity and distributing it to the fan bases, because the other sports already had coverage before the SEC network came along. And was it true? And he got to talking. Yeah, it's true. He said, but he said for the sport of college baseball to grow the way we want it to and to become powerful the way we want it to, the Big Ten has to be a part of it. You know, he's looking at the yeah, he's looking at the national landscape of college baseball, and he says, you know, those schools and that conference. What he's essentially saying is those TV markets and those fan bases. We got to get them involved in this sport also. And when you start the college baseball season in February, they're playing tough sell. They're playing snowball up there, so that's Mm -hmm. one thing. But then he did also say that we also have to a lot more scholarship aid for baseball across the board because. He said the 11.7 deal is ridiculous, and he's right. He is. I mean, it, it. we see it in the MLB draft every year. The The 11.7 costs the sport of college baseball talent yeah. every single year every in year. a way that the draft relationship with the NBA before the whole one-and-done requirement thing did not cost college basketball talent. The the MLB draft and its relationship with the 11.7 cost college baseball infinitely more talent than being able to go straight from high school to the NBA cost college basketball talent. Because if you were a top-level basketball prospect back then, you could still live a pretty comfortable life mm-hmm. on campus for a year or two as a college basketball player. And college baseball, it just doesn't offer those same, those same luxuries and that same standard of, of living. Um, well, let me so just put it to you this way. I, I, I hate to – this is the last um, chase a rabbit statement I have, Brett. Feel free to slap me after this and get it right back on track, okay? Okay. But if you are a kid growing up in a 
you know, in a, what's the right word? In a middle-class family or lower, where, okay. let's be honest, middle-class family in America, I'm not talking about, you know, you're making a $2,000 house payment every month. No. When I say middle-class, I'm talking about you may live in an apartment, you may live in a small house, and your house payment's 750 bucks a month, and you are struggling, okay? Yeah. You know, even if it is a two-parent household, you got two parents that neither of them are making $50,000 a year. I, I got news for you. Whether anybody wants to admit it or not, that's middle class in America, and there's a more of those than anything else, and and a lot of that are that are making a lot less. And if you're in that, and you're a kid, or let's just say you're a parent like that, and you hope your kid is good athletically so that they can earn a scholarship athletically to go to college and play sports to get it paid for. What is you? What is a better option for you to encourage them to play football? Or baseball. Always football. It's football. Because guess what? You can go play football at a public school. It doesn't cost you anything to go there, and it's competitive. All the best players are going to public school. Okay? And in baseball, what are you going to do if you don't have money? You're going to go play? Uh, You're not going to play travel ball, and that's going to kill your college chances right there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You're not playing travel ball as a kid if you don't have money. Period. If you can't afford it, I mean, it's it's done. And so then you're going to go play at the City League, which is fun. It's what we all grew up playing. But now they don't have as much competition. The teams aren't as good because all the rich kids have bolted and gone to play travel ball. So it, it is a – the whole sport is fouled up. It's all – it's fouled up. It's not fouled up from the top down. It's fouled up from the bottom up. Okay, rant over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and empty the uh, the notebook here. And if you have, if you hear anything that inspires you to to throw a shot, throw a thought in there, just just uh, just yell at me to stop. Okay. Um, uh, most of these are statistical notes because, of course, they are. I am Brett Hudson, after all. But the the one that doesn't completely apply is a quick shout out to Vandy first baseman and nine hole hitter Julian Infante after I spent a couple hours diving into the video <laughs> and presenting him as a serious threat he goes 0 for 4 with three strikeouts so I really appreciate that Julian thank you thank you for wasting my time really love that um, statistical notes this is of course I'm going to start with the most important statistics first this is the 69th time that Jake Mangum has led off a game with a hit and it was his 69th two-hit game of his career. Nice ball player, Jake Mangum. He now has 107 hits this season. He, had, he went two for five against Vandy, which leads the nation, and it ties the school record set by Adam Frazier in 2013. So he's already the SEC career hit king. He's already the Mississippi State career hit king. And his next hit will make him the Mississippi State single-season hit king. One of his two hits was a double, which was the 24th of the season. That ties him for fifth in school history with Rob Hoswald and Brian Weiss. And it was his 73rd of his career, which puts him alone in third in SEC history. He used to be tied with ESPN's Chris Burke in that regard, no longer tied there. Uh, Mangum now has eight College World Series hits, which is the second most among Bulldogs, tied with Barry Payton from the 97 and 98 teams. A teammate of Barry Payton's, Rustin Tons, holds the school record for College World Series hits with nine so Mangum needs one to tie and two to break 
that record. Uh, this is just the second time in school history that a team has had two 23 double guys on the same team. Jake Mangum now has 24. Tanner Allen now has 23. The only other instance was Rob Hoswald and Adam Pyatt in 1996. Uh, and they're close to adding one more. By the way, Jordan Westberg has 22 doubles and Elijah McNamee has 20. Okay. Uh, T- Tanner Allen is on a 13-game hit streak. That's the longest of his career. He's also on a career-long bases reached base streak at 20. Jordan Westberg is also on a career-long reached base streak at 19. And my last one is it's been tough to erase a lead in this College World Series. Uh, these numbers are current after the state game. They do not include the Florida State-Texas Tech game that followed it because we're recording in the middle of it right now. It looks like it's in the sixth inning of that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so keep that in mind. Teams that score first are six and two in the College World Series so far, and there have only been two lead changes in the entire tournament. One of them, courtesy of Mississippi State, in that walk-off mm. against Auburn. Wow, wow! How about in that? that wild? <clears throat> and especially with all those close games, yeah, to, to not have any more lead changes than that—that's really rare. I mean, p- pitching has dominated the College World Series so far. So if you if you get an early runner or two up. Uh, I mean, the, the numbers show it. It's it's borderline impossible to come back, or it has been so far yeah. uh, here in Omaha. Yeah, 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 it sure has. Hey, Brett, um, before we go, just wanted to say, um, you know, great job to you, the, um, the way that you have uh, uh, covered everything so far in Omaha. I know you've been away from home for a long time, and it just gets longer and longer, and if State keeps winning, it's going to be the better part of two weeks, and – Great job to you, and also just a, a tip of the cap to uh, everybody who continues to listen to Dogpile Podcast. They're buying coffee from uh, High Point Roasters and tweeting about yeah, it. Yeah, I've, I've got a that. tweet in my mentions right now about it, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're buying cheesecakes from Jubilations. Um, they're letting um, Mississippi Land Bank know about it, too, and so we just appreciate y'all uh, so much also. And y'all let Brett know that you appreciate it as well. Um, Good stuff, as always, Brett. Get some sleep. I'll, I'll try, man. Thank you, sir. That, that 7 o'clock game tomorrow ought to help a little bit. Yeah, we'll see. No doubt about it. For Brett Hudson, I'm Matt Wyatt. This is Dogpile. We'll see you next time. See you. Again, we want to thank our sponsors who make Dogpile possible. Mississippi Land Bank. Y'all let them know at mslandbank.com and tell them Hale State. Jubilations Cheesecake in West Point jubilations.com every season is jubilation season and high point roasters coffee in new albany trust me get your coffee at high point and check them out online highpointroasters.com we'll see you next time